be from uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. It says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and you will be... You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospels must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Sometimes it's just an honor to honor other people, isn't it? And I I really appreciate... Uh, the opportunity that we have to honor Sister Bandy Burt this afternoon. I, I'm glad that she's living to be 100. I'm glad that we're all here as a congregation of God's people that we can do that. It reminds me of an illustration I've used in a logic class before about a fellow who had reached 100. He was in a nursing home, and a, a reporter went out as a human interest story to interview the man. And one of the questions he asked was, to what do you attribute your old age? And without hesitation, he said, to the fact that I was born such a long time ago. Well, that's logical, and I'm glad that we can honor Sister Burt in, in this way. Case number one, an elderly couple well into their 80s was so frail it was difficult for them to walk unaided into the church building, and yet it was apparent that they loved one another and they loved the Lord, and they clung to one another and leaned on one another as they were making their way from place to place. And yet, despite that, every time they taught, their classes were overflowing with people wanting to hear them. The old brother could hardly speak above a whisper, and yet the men who came to his men's class strained to hear every word that he spoke. His wife had a ladies' class with women eager to learn. The question I asked about case number one was, what was their special quality? And the obvious answer would be their longevity, the fact that they had been here for a while, that they loved the Lord, they knew his word, wanted to communicate that word, and also had wisdom born of experience that they were willing to share with those who were younger. So longevity would be the first thing that we would say. But I think more particularly it was the suffering that they had experienced in their lives, and I won't explain why in just a moment. I believe those, those two credentials gave their words an authority that influenced and inspired the hearts of everyone that associated with them. Case number two, though he was relatively a young man, Bill's cancer had confined him to bed. And yet still Christians would come to his house, ring his doorbell, sit at a chair next to his bed, and ask for his advice. They admired the way that despite his debilitating illness, he had used his financial success to turn his home into a place of Christian service to others. So there were homeless people, there were recovering addicts, and even former prostitutes that were all welcome in his house. And he taught them the word and led them to Jesus. In the year before Bill died, he was constantly invited to address groups in the medical community. And there he was asked to speak about a subject that he had come to know very well, and that was the subject of death and dying. 
His suffering had given him some kind of special authority in his community. Walk with me this morning as we turn our eyes upon Jesus. In fact, let's begin by singing that together. Two verses, I mean two lines, so let's sing it through twice. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of Amen. I think that the subject that I have chosen for our study this morning is, may seem a little strange. And yet in this series of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus lessons that we've been looking at, there have been some that have been a little difficult and some that make us a little uncomfortable as we think about, hey, that's what really being a disciple of Jesus entails. And suffering is one of those things that Jesus calls upon us to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in one of his biographies said that when, when the Lord calls a man, he bids him come and die. There is some suffering involved in our following Jesus. And so I want us to look at that, just a snapshot kind of version of that this morning. And I want us to begin by looking at the correlation between suffering and authority in Scripture. Because suffering does bestow an undefinable and yet very tangible authority upon those who've experienced it. Not only in the two cases I mentioned a moment ago, but in our own lives as well. And that stamp of authority demonstrates what people have been through. That is, their experiencing of suffering gives them a special authority to speak to others who are either also going through that same kind of suffering or will at one point in their life suffer to some degree. It reveals what they've endured. And that kind of authority sometimes commands the kind of respect, I think, that's accorded an athlete who through lengthy and painful training has achieved the level of success that he or she has achieved. At other times, it brings the, the honor granted to a scholar because of his or her diligent study. That is, we, we sit at their feet and we learn because we say, that person has paid the price of diligent study and therefore I can learn something from that person. But more often, though unheralded, authority cloaks the widow who speaks to another person who has just lost her husband. That same authority resides in the man who's confined to a wheelchair, who gives courage to a young boy who was recently paralyzed. It fills a hospital corridor where a man who has just buried his own son holds and cries with a man who just buried his daughter. And we say of these people, they know what they're talking about. They have walked the talk. They have been there. And so their words are given a special authority because we know that they not only can sympathize, but they can empathize with what we're going through at the moment. They know to some degree how we feel. And because they've known suffering, 
And they're not merely detached observers. They have a special right to be heard. And because they themselves are what has been referred to, at least in one of my books, as wounded healers, they have the authority to help others who are wounded in body and in spirit. Look at that in the life of Jesus. I think that people, when they heard Jesus speak, they immediately sensed a level of authority. In fact, the scriptures outright say that. If you don't believe that, look at the very last verse of the Sermon on the Mount. People sensed authority in Jesus. And it set him apart from the other teachers and religious leaders. And Mark, and I'm going to focus, as we've been doing on the first Sunday morning of each month, to the gospel record of Mark and identify some of these hallmarks in Jesus' life that indicated this special authority. He highlights his early authority in his gospel story. Let me give you three quick examples of that. Mark 1 and verse 22. Mark records the people were amazed at his, and of course he's talking about Jesus there, at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. The scribes could come and say, it has been written, here's what I've learned through my study. But Jesus would come and say, I am telling you with the authority of the throne room of God itself. Here's another one. Mark one twenty seven. the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? And then also in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turned and said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. Those are just three examples. But Mark and all the gospel records are replete with examples of Jesus' authority being recognized and to some degree appreciated by the people to whom he spoke. But as the story unfolds, paralleling Jesus' authority was his ever-deepening involvement in human suffering. It seems that the more Jesus suffered, the more he went through what those of us who walk this planet all go through, the more his words had authority. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that our Lord spent his entire life without sin. People understood that Jesus had been there. Jesus had, had experienced every temptation, every trial, every trouble that we experience, at least categorically, and yet he did so without ever making a mistake. And so that's why he's our perfect example. And whether it was delivering the demon-possessed, whether it was cleansing the leper or healing the paralytic or fellowshipping with a social outcast, when we open Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we find Jesus opening himself to suffering. Not just his own, but the suffering of others. He did not hold people at arm's length because they were suffering. In fact, he embraced them for that very reason. In fact, it was Jesus' involvement in human suffering that led those observing him to conclude that he spoke and acted with authority. That the proof of Jesus' authority was his involvement in human suffering seems to be a conclusion that the writer of Hebrews also reached. Let me give you some examples of that very quickly. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. These are two verses that most Bible students are familiar with. Although he was a son, yet learned he obedience from what he suffered. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Yet learned he obedience... Through the things which he suffered, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 2 verse 10 reads, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. One more. 
Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so otherwise we would be able to say maybe cognitively, mentally he understands what it means to go through suffering. But he hasn't suffered the way I've suffered. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, no, we can't make that, we can't make that case. Because he suffered as much, in fact, much, much more than we've ever suffered. And in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, it's, it's no coincidence that following that beautiful passage that describes Jesus' descent to earth, you know the passage that begins with verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how that he emptied himself and took upon the form of a servant. Right after that description of, of Jesus leaving his place of glory in heaven and coming to this earth to walk among men as a man, there comes a tremendous description of Jesus' authority. And here's what it says. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. That with that conscious decision to come to this earth and walk among us as one of us gives Jesus a special authority. And that is because of that authority, every person is going to be accountable to him. And someday every, every voice will chorus the understanding that this is in fact the Son of God. Please note that lordship followed crucifixion and authority followed suffering. The one who Paul said emptied himself is the one whose authority will someday be recognized by every, t- every knee and every tongue. And because he was painfully aware of his own suffering, Jesus had a special right to, to speak. Especially did he have the right when he explained to his disciples that they would also suffer. Now I have to admit to you, this is the hard place of this lesson. Not only can we open our Bibles and see that Jesus suffered, And I'm not even talking about the crucifixion. I'm not talking about the scourging that took place before they nailed him to that old rugged cross. I'm talking about the the time that he spent in his three and a half year ministry and how that he suffered constantly throughout that ministry. But then he also calls upon those of us who follow him to be willing to suffer. And I wonder if that's the time where we say, well, that's a deal breaker for me. And we turn our back on the cross and we walk away. We say, no, I've got enough suffering without volunteering for more. I simply want to communicate one message to you this morning, and that is if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to suffer. One way or the other. It may be mental, psychological, it may be physical in all likelihood, given the circumstances and our political freedom. It will not be physical, but it may. Did you know that there's been more people who have died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the last century? than all the previous centuries put together, people are still suffering who follow Christ. And Jesus, as a part of his personal ministry, as he pulled his disciples aside, wanted them to understand that that was going to be an inevitable part of their discipleship. If you follow me, then you're going to have to buy into my suffering. You're going to share in that suffering. Listen to Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 9 through 13. You must be on your guard You'll be handed over, Garrett read this a moment ago, I want to remind you of its content. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before the governors and kings as witnesses to me. We're going to back up and focus on that in just a moment. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. Now think about, that's almost amazing, isn't it? 
while you're going through this suffering, you have the responsibility and the privilege of sharing the good news around you. You still can't be locked in on yourself. You can't wake up every morning and sing the first and last verses of Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. You've got a responsibility to make sure that the saving message of the gospel is preached in all nations. And whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given you at the time. For it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. This is... This is uh, auditory inspiration we're talking about. This message will come directly from the Holy Spirit himself. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. That probably doesn't belong anywhere in the publicity brochure, does it? You will be hated of all men for my name's sake. That isn't, by our standards, a very good recruiting form. And yet Jesus knew that if these men and women were going to faithfully follow him to the very end, and for some of them the end of their lives, literally, they needed to know what they were buying into. He never asked anyone, and he still doesn't 2,000 years later, to sign a blank check and then let him fill in the amount later. He says, I want you to know you're going to suffer. And then he spells out some of the specific instances in which that would take place. In fact, if I've counted correctly, four times, just in the 13th chapter of Mark, Jesus warns his disciples to be watchful and to stay on guard. You don't always see it coming. So always be watchful, always be vigilant. And and after being very clear about his own suffering, he was leaving no doubt that to choose him was to choose a difficult path. It's not going to all be peaches and cream. It's not all going to be rainbows and sunshine. There's going to be suffering. And folks, I'm telling you that in 2019... If we're serious about turning our eyes upon Jesus, and if we're serious about following him as sincere, true, committed, devoted disciples, we're going to suffer. We're going to have to pay some kind of price. And the question that I'm asking us this morning is, are we willing to sift and weigh our own hearts to see if we have that level of dedication? Or will we turn and run the first time we have to suffer In fact, he predicted three occasions of suffering. Lock in on chapter 13 of Mark, verse 9. You'll be handed over to the local councils. There's one. You'll be stand before governors, two, and kings, three, as witnesses to them. It's important to know that all three of those predictions came to pass. First of all, the local councils, having brought the apostles, the Bible says, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. That's Acts 5, verses 27 and verses 40 through 41. They walked away from that, that encounter with the Sanhedrin, praising God and thanking him for the privilege of suffering For his name's sake. That's where I want to be. That's the faith I want. That's the level of dedication that we all need. To make a real difference in this world. Here's another one. What about the governors? Acts 24. 
Verses 1 through 2 and verse 27 addresses that. They brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius, Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, there's the second aspect of Jesus' prediction that's come through. What about the third? What about the kings? Well, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. By the way, this is Acts 25, verses 23 and following. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I'd call that persecution. How about you? I'd call that oppression. How about you? This man we have voted, and this man should not live any longer. What's he guilty of? He's guilty of spreading this message about Jesus. It all came to pass, just as Jesus had told his apostles. Not a thing that he predicted to them that they would have, the, in terms of the cost that they would have to pay, did not come to pass. But why were these early Christians so willing to suffer? That's one of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves as we walk through these passages. Why were they, they uh, and why did they attract this kind of suffering? Why, why did people come out of the woodworks to, to speak against these disciples of Jesus? I, I think one sentence makes it perfectly clear, and it's found in Acts 4 and verse 13. Listen to it. You know the verse. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they, they were astonished, and they took note, and here it is, here's the clue, that these men had been with Jesus. Just their association with Jesus changed them, and it deepened their enthusiasm and determination to live faithfully to the God of heaven and to do whatever it was that Jesus said they needed to do and to pay whatever price that they needed to pay in order to be New Testament Christians, and and I'm just praying that we have that same commitment today. Apparently, these early Christians had learned about authority from the suffering of Jesus. Tradition tells us that only one of the 12 apostles died a natural death. Think about that. Only one was able to have a 100th birthday party or whatever it was. Every one of them, except for one, died a violent death. Among them, Stephen, a deacon from the Jerusalem church, was stoned to death. Matthew died a martyr's death in Ethiopia. Andrew and Peter were both crucified. Paul was beaten eight times, shipwrecked three times, before then being decapitated outside of Rome. Did you know that it was illegal just to be a Christian during the first three centuries of church history? That is, it was a punishable offense to do what we're doing this morning. I'm asking you not only can you keep and grow your faith in the 21st century world, but do you think that if you had lived in the first century world, that you would have maintained your faith and lived out your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it was illegal just to align yourself with people of the Christian way? Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't believe in the same gods, uh, the Roman gods that other people believed in. They were said to be cannibals because of a twisted understanding of the Lord's Supper. You're actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Oh, that's horrible. All in all, they were, these Christians were convenient scapegoats. And now we can look back to the eighth beatitude with a deeper understanding. When Jesus 
in those Beatitudes said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just persecuted, not just suffering, but being persecuted because of your righteousness. That makes it a different game altogether. I'm just asking us this morning simple questions. But questions I think that we have to delve very deeply into our hearts in order to be able to come up with an honest and sincere reply. We are living in a day of heated baptistries, of air-conditioned auditoriums, and padded pews. Can we really understand what it means to suffer for Jesus? What does it mean to be a wounded healer today? And I'm just going to go ahead and acknowledge to you, I haven't, I haven't really suffered. I haven't suffered to any degree the way that first century Christians had to suffer. Have we, one writer asks, suffered even unto blood because of our faith? That's a question we need to ask. And I think there are three quick lessons that we can learn from what we've talked about already this morning. Number one, suffering requires an eternal viewpoint. You see, the perspective of the 12 apostles seemed to have been confined to the here and now. That's kind of the way we still do today if we're not careful. We have to, we have to train ourselves to, to think about to aspirations that are above, not on things of the earth, as Paul said in Colossians 3, verses 1 and following. And those apostles were really locked in on just the here and now, on the physical, on, on what you could see at the moment. For example, in Mark 13, when they looked at the temple, here was what they said. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. That's all they saw. And, and they were impressed with the here and now. So Jesus immediately broadened their narrow viewpoint to include what would happen in the future. And what he said was in verse 2 of Mark chapter 13, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, and yet the apostles thought that he was. In fact, the entire 13th chapter of Mark is future-oriented. Jesus is talking about, here's what's going to happen, here's what's coming. And the discussion moved from persecution to the destruction of Jerusalem to the end of the world. And Jesus called all of this turmoil, look at verse 8 of Mark 13. He called all of this conflict the beginning of sorrows. Again, would you put that in the welcome brochure? You are in on the cutting edge of the beginning of sorrows. He wanted them to know what was in store for them. And that they would become a part of something much bigger, much more than they could ever imagine at the moment. Jesus pushed the discussion to the end of time. And by the end of the chapter said in effect that that ministry, the ministry that you are about to to be involved in is much bigger than the trouble that it brings. So keep watch, be alert, be on guard. They were told, verse 37 of that chapter, lesson number two, suffering gives authority to ministry. In the middle of his discussion about suffering, here's what Jesus said, Mark 13, verse 10. The gospel must be first preached to all the nations. Watch this. Ministry will take place in the midst of suffering. I don't know how how you are, but if I've got something going on in my life that's negative, that's difficult, that's a struggle, it's an obstacle for me, I want to be able to get that obstacle out of the way. I want to get that, uh, that illness taken care of and remedied and feeling better before I attempt to do anything constructive. And Jesus said, you can't wait. You're going to have to be preaching while you're suffering. And the suffering is going to give credibility to that ministry. 
If nothing else, the world will look at your life, at your example, at your spiritual tenacity and say these people have something going on. There is something that's different that motivates them that, 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 that even in the midst of suffering. I mean, here's someone being stoned to death in this city. Here's someone being decapitated. Here's somebody being nailed to a cross. Solely because of their faith in Jesus Christ, these people that mean it when they stand for, for, for the faith. And when they, when they say, I'm going to follow him no matter what comes. Reflecting, in fact, on how Jesus demonstrated this truth on the cross, Peter wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 2, 23 and 24. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that they might, that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I mean, just two verses, but it is just saturated with suffering. What Jesus did for us, that we could never, ever... Do for ourselves. And I hope we think about that. When the cup and the bread come by. Thank you Lord. For your suffering. For doing for me what I could never possibly ever in a thousand lifetimes do for myself. For allowing your righteousness to be imputed to me. Although I, in, in the best of moments, would never be considered righteousness, Jesus' righteousness will be put on, on our invoice. It will be credited to our account. The wounded healer has a great credibility and therefore great authority. Paul put it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, 6 through 7. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. So suffering can, can drive a person in one of two directions. It will either drive us to discouragement, and we will sit around singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and wondering why I'm trying to live the way the Lord would have me to live, and yet he allows all of this hardship and suffering in my life. It will either drive us to discouragement, or it will, it will give us, please don't miss this church, it will give us the authority to serve. Lesson number three. And finally, suffering is unavoidable. The real issue is not, will you and I suffer for the cause of Christ? Jesus was definite and certain on this point. He said that suffering is inevitable. As long as there's, there's disciples, there's going to be suffering. John sixteen thirty three makes that clear. In, in this world, you will have tribulation. That just means trouble or suffering. So the real issue is, what will suffering contribute to my life and to yours? Will it destroy me? Will it discourage me? Will I blame God for the suffering in my life and decide to walk away from the cross, turn my back on Jesus, lay my armor down on the field of battle never to return? Or will it give me the authority to help and to serve and to heal others? Jesus did not want the twelve to prepare sermons he wanted them to prepare themselves. So that's why in our text, look at verse 11 and we're through. 
So he instructed them, whenever you're arrested, do not worry beforehand about what you will say. That's an oral kind of inspiration that was promised to them. That is not, by the way, promised to preachers or anyone who speaks his word today. But there was a special direct inspiration from the Holy Spirit that allowed them in moments of trial to be able to speak with the authority of God. You don't have to worry about. You don't have to outline your remarks beforehand. The Spirit is going to be telling you what you need to say. I'm telling you that the best preparation is not in the detailed arrangements in the specific plans or in a finished speech. That was what he's communicating to those disciples. Our best preparation, even in our day, is a lot deeper than that. It's the provision provision that we've made on the inside. Sometimes people say, I never speak a word for Jesus because I'm not a good communicator. Well, I'll tell you what. What the world is going to see is not so much what they hear, although at some level, of course, we we have to communicate the message to them. Somebody does. But the world will be one to Jesus Christ when they see in your life and in mine a wounded healer. Someone who is suffering, but yet still continues to, to walk the talk. Someone who continues to affirm by the way that we live The fact that I am a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read on a church sign somewhere, 1% of the people may read the Bible. The other 99% will read the Christian. That's pretty much true, isn't it? They're going to be looking at your life. So we need to make these provisions on the inside. It It makes sure that the bases are covered for the inner person and we're not just concerned about the outer person. It realizes, folks, that we don't have a soul. Are you listening to me? We don't have a soul. We are a soul. We just happen to have a body. So, the only kind of preparation that will enable us to stand to the end is the kind of preparation that we've been talking about this morning. Buying into the suffering. But I want to end with some really good news. Romans 8 and verse 17. Here's a promise from the throne room of God himself. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. I hope that you appreciate the full implications. Are you following Jesus today? Through your faith, your sincere faith that motivates you to repent of your past sins and to confess Jesus as God's son, it would be our absolute sincere delight to baptize you into Christ where his blood will wash away every one of your sins. And you'll follow him and become a new creature in Christ. And we bid you come while we stand, while we sing.